Our sermon this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3. I will be reading from chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's now hear from the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mount, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So you've heard our text for today, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just considering the depths and the beauty of this one little verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I have the privilege of beginning uh, the Beatitudes with you. Your time in the Beatitudes, and it's a, this description of what blessed people are like. And this passage raises a question for all of us. It raises a question for all of us. Do you have a good life? What would you say to that? Do you have a good life? Is your life good? What's good about it? Is it good because you have a good job? Is it because your family loves you and supports you? Is it because you're healthy? Is it because you just bumped up your internet speed at the house and now Zoom calls aren't freezing anymore? Why do you have a good life? Do you have a good life? What would you say? And maybe for some of you, the answer is no. I, my, my life is not great right now. Well, here in Matthew 5, Jesus has opened his mouth to teach, and he begins by describing to us the good life. If you had trouble answering that question, whether or not you have a good life, because you weren't sure what the good life is, well, here is your answer in the Beatitudes. The good life is being poor in spirit. The good life is mourning. The good life is being meek. The good life is being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The good life is being merciful. It's being pure in heart. It's being a peacemaker. It's being persecuted for your righteousness. Sounds pretty great, right? The good life. Nothing like kicking back. Laying poolside, getting ready for a day of mourning and persecution. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus, that he helps us to see and understand this world in its present condition is not the end. This isn't all that there is. In fact, the things that our desires and our instincts tell us are good. The things that our hearts might even trick us into thinking we should spend our time and all of our energy pursuing and going after that. Well, those things actually leave us dissatisfied, frustrated, wanting something more. But the good life is knowing Christ and following him. And these first several verses in Matthew 5 are a description of and an invitation to come and partake of the good life. This is what it looks like. And for our time this morning, I've prepared an outline for you in your handout. I'm sure you'll find it inspiring and insightful. 
I literally just put the number, I literally just put numbers next to the words in the passage. But nonetheless, this is how I hope to spend our time this morning. As we consider what Jesus describes for us as his first component, his first part of having a good life, I want to begin by explaining the word blessed. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by saying that? How is it functioning in the attitude, the Beatitudes? Then we'll consider what it is to be poor in spirit. And finally, we'll look to why the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. So blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on and so on. What does that mean? Is Jesus talking about different groups of people who will be blessed? And what does that word blessed even involve? What does it entail? God is pouring out blessing on these people? Is Jesus saying that they have some Benefit, or they're going to receive some future benefit, or is it both? We're helped by seeing how blessing is used in the Old Testament as we consider our context in the Beatitudes. If we look at the Old Testament, we're, we're helped to see what Jesus is doing here. When you think, when I think at least about blessing the Old Testament, I might think of somebody like Abraham. Abraham, where God promised to bless him. He promised him to, to promise to bless him with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Promised to bless him with land and promised that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. God would bless Abraham and bring blessing through him. Or if you think about Moses and the law, God gave the law to his people through Moses on Mount Sinai and he said, if you will keep the words of this covenant and follow this law, then you will be blessed. I will pour out my blessing upon you. You will be fruitful. You will have abundance. You will have peace. God would pour out his blessing on them. And that is at least what I often think about when I consider blessing. I think about God's favor. I think about his loving and gracious hand providing for and caring for us. But when you translate the Hebrew word used for blessing with Abraham, the Hebrew word used for blessing with Moses, when you translate it over into Greek, well, it's not the word that Jesus uses in his sermon. It's a different word. Now, Jesus is using a word for blessed that we often find in the Psalms. He's not describing God as doing something, pouring out his favor on people. No, he's describing the blessed life. He's saying that these people are happy in a way that goes beyond just the emotion. Some, these people are someone who, when you look at their life, you want to congratulate them. You want to celebrate them. They are blessed. They have the good life. If you've got a Bible... You can turn to Psalm 1. I'll show you what I mean. Psalm 1 is where we see this idea of blessing articulated. This context that applies for us in the Beatitudes. So the word used for blessed in Psalm 1 is always translated into Greek. The same word that's used for blessed in Matthew 5. It's not the word from Abraham and Moses. Blessings from God. It's not that promised 
blessing, but it's a description of a person who's content, who's happy, who's flourishing, who has the good life. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so that are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Blessed is this man. The psalm is not making a declaration about God's favor, but it's providing a vision of the good and wise way to live. The man who has the good life is the man who doesn't do what the wicked do, but he delights in God's word. He thinks about it. He obeys it all day, all night. He delights in it. This man is like a fruitful tree by an abundance of water. He prospers. The Lord knows his way. This man has the good life. This word for blessed is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5. If you read the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, there are actually quite a few parallels with Psalm 1. It's as if Jesus is taking the truth God recorded through David and is explaining it and expanding upon it when he says, Blessed is the one who is poor in spirit. You are living well if you're poor in spirit. That's what he's saying. And if that's what blessed means in this text, if blessed means in the Beatitudes, it's this description of the good life, well, how does that affect us today? Well, for us, it means that God and His grace has provided a way to correct and reform the desires of our hearts and the murmurs in our minds when we're tempted to jealousy, to when we're tempted to discontentment. When you're driving down the road and you see that nice car, you're like, man, I wish I had that car. When you're at work and all you can think about is how you'd rather be out on the golf course or at home streaming Netflix. When you think, man, sharing the gospel is so awkward and uncomfortable. Is it really worth it? We're reminded that although having a good car and although taking time to play golf are, are good things, the good life is not ultimately about abundance. It's not about ease. It's not about our comfort. The good life, despite what our desires tell us, despite what our hearts might long for at times, the good life is being poor in spirit. It's mourning. It's meekness. brings us to the question of what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit, what is that idea? It's the idea of humility or contrition or this feeling of remorse is to be poor in spirit, which much like the idea of being blessed as we saw as 
grounded in the Old Testament, has Old Testament roots. So the idea of to be poor in spirit is a concept with Old Testament roots as well. Finally, the end of Isaiah, that the end of that book is largely about the beautiful restoration the Lord is going to bring about through his suffering servant Christ. This new order where the wolf and the lamb graze together. Isaiah 57, 15 speaks about the poor in spirit like this. It says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. The Lord dwells with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. His people are poor in spirit and the Lord revives them and lifts them up. Or Isaiah 66 verse 2 speaks about it like this. It says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my so to be poor in spirit is to be humble, it's to be contrite, it's to tremble at the word of God. To be poor in spirit, you are to be one upon whom the Lord will look. Be poor in spirit, humility, contrition. So if, let's think more about what this means, to be poor in spirit. If you allow me, I'd like to begin by considering sort of a... A negative example first, or kind of the opposite of what it might look like to be poor in spirit. So uh, you may or may not be a, a sports fan, but sports are slowly coming back, uh, or at least in the case of baseball, it may be quickly going away again. But after that night in Oklahoma City, when one of the Utah Jazz players tested positive for COVID-19, there were no sports at all for several months. And one of the ways that people tried to fill the void, the, the absence of sports, was discussing who's the greatest basketball player of all time. There was a documentary release, and there was lots of discussion about Michael Jordan. And many of the anecdotes that came out about Jordan at that time revealed that he held on to every slight, he held on to everything and anything that could possibly be perceived as something that was negative about him or about his abilities on the basketball court, and he used that as fuel to get better. If someone thought they were better than him, if someone won an award that he thought he deserved, if someone thought they could beat him, well, he was determined to show that, no, he was actually the greatest. He believed he had no weaknesses in the game of basketball. He believed that he was better than any and every person who played the game. In regards to basketball, Michael Jordan was not poor in spirit. If you told him that he wasn't going to win, he said, no, I am going to win. If you told him he wasn't the greatest, he said, I am the greatest. Well, spiritually speaking, the opposite, being poor in spirit, in the similar vein of how Michael Jordan believed he was the greatest basketball player Ever, well, spiritually speaking, to not be poor in spirit means you actually believe that of your own merits you are a good person, no matter what you're doing, no matter what someone says about you. The opposite of being poor in spirit, spiritually speaking, 
is if someone were to say to you that you are not a very, you know, you're not a very good person. You would say, what? Yes, I am. If someone told you that apart from Jesus, you don't deserve to go to heaven, well, then you would say to them, what? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a nice guy. I, I am a good person. I, I deserve to go to heaven. If you're not poor in spirit, you have the pride and the arrogance to believe that you are good enough to belong in the same space as the righteous God of the universe. Standing on your own. That's what it doesn't look like to be poor in spirit. On the flip side of that, to think positively about what it does mean, it's to be aware of and to accept your own weakness. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of your sins and to express remorse over them. To be aware of how desperately you need the saving work of Christ in this moment, in the next moment, forever to spare you from the condemnation of hell. To be poor in spirit is to recognize just how wretched you are apart from Christ and His saving grace. To be a Christian is to be poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit and you hear someone call you a liar, you say, yes, that's fair. I know I have lied on multiple occasions and I'm desperately in need of Jesus to forgive me of that. If you're poor in spirit and you hear someone say that you deserve to be condemned to hell for your sins, you respond and say, yes, I do accept for God's grace that intervenes for me to give me forgiveness. I deserve His judgment. To be poor in spirit is to know the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness of God, and to know that you are not. To be poor in spirit is to look and see the Lord and tremble because of your imperfections. To be poor in spirit is to be like the Israelites at Mount Sinai who saw the, the lightning and who heard the thunder when God descended on the mountain and they were afraid. They stood back and they said to Moses, hey, you speak to us, but not the Lord, for we will surely die. Aware of their unworthiness, aware of their sinfulness and his great holiness and power. To be poor in spirit is to be like Isaiah, who when confronted with the Lord can't help himself but respond, woe is me of unclean lips. God's holiness and his sinfulness exposed in that moment. To be poor in spirit is to be like Peter in Luke 5, who after a night of fishing without catching any fish, sees Jesus simply tell them to throw their nets back in the water. And they catch more fish than their nets or their boats could hold. And Peter replies to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. To be poor in spirit is to be like Christ himself, even the Son of God, who Philippians 2 tells us, did not count equality with God a thing to be 
to be poor in spirit is to look upon the Lord and see his authority, to see his perfection, to see his goodness, to see his mercy, to see his grace, to see his holiness, and to know your own unworthiness. To know your own weakness. To know your own desperate and utter need for him and his grace. To be poor in spirit is to be Christian. And this is the good life. To always be aware of your own weaknesses, your failures, your inability. That is the good life, Jesus says here. I thought the good life was found by believing in yourself. The good life is, if you can dream it, you can do it, right? The good life is to be like Mike, to find all the success that he had on the basketball court. Jesus shows us that what the world says is success. It will, will leave you dissatisfied in the end. It's not true. It's a lie. And for a moment, I want to speak to any of you who may not consider yourself a Christian. If you, maybe you're feeling, you know, living a life of acknowledging your weakness, living a life in a way that you're supposed to be glad about your failures. That sounds odd. That sounds difficult. You're, you're right about that. But here Jesus is teaching us that everything our culture has taught us about what we want, everything that our natural desires have led us to believe, everything that the world says is good is going to leave you empty. To believe you have it all together, to will your way to overcoming weakness, spiritually speaking, is impossible. And it will lead you into despair. In the final realization that you can't believe in yourself enough to be made right with God. Because of your sin and the wrong that you've done. But non-Christian, if you will acknowledge your sins, if you will acknowledge your failures before the Lord, and if you will turn from them and ask Jesus for forgiveness, then you will find life. Jesus, who came to earth, became a man, and yet, unlike you and me, he never sinned, but died on a cross to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Jesus, if you will turn from your sin and trust in that Jesus, then you will know that it is better to hope in his perfection, it is better to delight in his goodness than to seek it on your own. If you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus and you will find the good life now and forevermore. The good life as he correctly defines it for us. And for Christians, the Beatitudes here, the beginning of Matthew 5, are, are they're here to help refine us, to help reshape our desires and our hearts. And one writer describes the Beatitudes like this. He says, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out 
as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires and bewildered us, leaving us poor and naked before God. For Christians who want to receive Jesus' invitation to live the way that he describes it, to live the good life as seen in the Beatitudes, for Christians who want that, we must allow God's word to plow up the ground of our hearts and to show us what true happiness, delight, contentment are. To, to reshape those conceptions in our minds, to reshape what blessing is. And that blessing really is found in a humble and contrite spirit. Blessing is found in mourning and meekness and the rest. You see, Jesus, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not talking about a specific group of people who just struggle with this plight, those people who just are naturally prone to be poor and poor in spirit. He's not saying those people who just have that tendency, you know, they're walking around, they're just poor in spirit all the time. Well, God is going to bless them. He's not saying that. No, Jesus is saying that the life you want, the blessed life, is one that is poor in spirit. One that recognizes and embraces your weakness and the goodness and the richness of the grace of Christ. So how do we do that? What does it look like to pursue that? Well, first, as we've seen with the Israelites and with Isaiah and Peter and Christ himself, we see as those who've encountered God, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Just to look at God. Consider who he is. Consider what he is like. To read his word. To delight in knowing him. To contrast his goodness and his perfection with your own incapacities and allow him to make you humble and contrite. Knowing that we can only boast in him and him alone. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of and accepting your own weakness. To be poor in spirit is to speak a harsh word to your child after they ignore you for the 20th time that day and to get on your knee and say, I'm sorry. Daddy messed up. I should not have spoken to you. Be poor in spirit is to overlook some details in a project at work and instead of trying to cover it up and make sure nobody knows so you can salvage your reputation, it's to be honest and open about it and acknowledge I'm still learning and growing. I made a mistake. To be poor in spirit is when your, your spouse or your friend comes to you and, and explains to you how you offended them or hurt your feelings. It's not the gut instinct to defend yourself. And to, and to explain away their emotions or what they're feeling. But it's to listen and receive those words and to seek to understand and bring healing. To be poor in spirit is not to be angry and frustrated with God about the trials and the difficulties of this pandemic season we're in. But it's to acknowledge that we have no idea what tomorrow holds. And to cling loosely to our dreams and our plans. And to trust in the sovereignty of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
be humble and contrite is to live the good life. Which brings us to the final section of our passage. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So answers this question, why, why is it good to be poor in spirit? What is so great about it? Well, those who are poor in spirit are blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase that Matthew uses quite a bit, one that you'll see more of and one that you've already seen in the book. But put simply, the kingdom of heaven, it's the way that things are supposed to be. It's a kingdom that's not ordered like this current world, but one in which Christ is ruling and reigning forever and who has consummated his rule. Think about the, the history of the world, okay, that we have in our, our Bibles. Go back to think about Genesis. God makes everything. He makes everything good. He makes Adam and Eve is kind of the pinnacle of that creation, but in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve then mess that up, right? They choose to doubt God's goodness, disobey His word, and then everything changes. Adam and Eve can no longer be in the presence of God. They're kicked out of the, the garden or, or the kingdom they were in at the time. They're kicked out and they had where they had a, an abundance of everything they could ever need or ask for. Now Adam will continue working, but now he'll do so by the sweat of his face. Eve will now have children, but it will be with great pain. There will be discord and strife in marriage between the man and woman. And we get to Genesis 4 and we see that more than Adam and just, just Adam and Eve are sinning, now it's spread. It's affecting others too. We see Cain sin against his brother. We see Lamech. Lamech make this prideful declaration that his, that his revenge is greater than God's. We get to Genesis 5 and we learn something else about the world. We've, we find this list of strange names there and people who are living 800 and 900 years on the earth. And if we can get past those things that seem so strange and poor to us, you see now that everyone in the world dies. This list tells us about a man. He lived this many years. He had these children and he died. This man lived this many years. He had these children and he died and he died and he died and he died. All but one. Enoch walked with God and he was not. It says. And we see this reality that God has the authority to reach down from the heavens and save whomever he desires and spare them from death. But. We also see that the world, this world for now, is one in which he's allowed sin to spread to all people and one in which he's allowed death to come to everybody. We live in a world, in a kingdom, where sin and death rule over us. Where strife and sickness and brokenness plague every one of us. But Christ comes with this message. He comes telling us, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because a new order is established in his coming and a final day will eventually arrive where sin and death will be no more. Where he will rightly restore the order that God intended in this world. Where his rule and his reign does not allow for illness. It doesn't allow for pain or tears or brokenness. But everything and everyone is made whole. Revelation 
11.15 speaks about the kingdom of heaven like this. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Isaiah 65 presents this picture where the wolf and the lamb are going to start eating grass. And they're going to graze together side by side. And where the lion eats straw like an ox. And they no longer hurt or destroy. Even the animals are made new in this kingdom. Revelation 21 speaks of the kingdom as a new heaven and a new earth where God dwells with man again like he did in the Garden of Eden. Where there are no more tears, no more death, mourning, crying, pain. It's all done away with. The old is gone. The kingdom of heaven is a, a new order. Where Christ's reign is finally and fully realized. And it's here, but it's also not yet. Christ has established his reign, but a day is coming when he will return and everything will be changed. So what does this mean for us? That the poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. What's that mean for us today? Well, Christian, it means that your faults, your Failures. If you're trusting in Jesus, that in spite of those things, it means for you that the kingdom of heaven belongs to you if you trust in Christ. For the Christian, it means that if you are poor in spirit, it means that you have found the good life because Christ's kingdom is yours. It will be yours. It means that your troubles, your sickness, your pain, your tears, this pandemic will end. It's got an expiration date. The future is certain for us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it will be consummated at Christ's return. It's guaranteed. Your weakness, your dependence upon God and His goodness will one day bring you into His presence forever. If you are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven belongs. As we close our time thinking about the Beatitudes and this blessed idea, I don't know how you grew up reading the Beatitudes, or maybe you didn't grow up reading them at all, but it takes some work for us to understand what Jesus means here and, and to realize he's building on ideas that have already been laid down for us in our Old Testament. You know, I used to read, read the Beatitudes as this word of, of comfort for these kind of imaginary groups of, of people. Yeah, those, those poor, meek people, man, they've got it rough. But God is going to bless them. Yeah, those poor in spirit, man, they're going to have a hard time. But thankfully, God will bring blessing to them. I hope we've seen from our time and from our study of Psalm 1 and then Isaiah that that's not what Jesus is doing here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not declaring blessing from God for people of different dispositions, people of different circumstances. But Jesus is explaining to us that this is the life that we want. To be poor in spirit is what we should all want, is what we should strive for, because it's actually good for us. It's best for us. It's the good life. Consider that question again with me. Do you have a good life? Do you have a good life? 
think Jesus is calling us to follow that up with, well, are you poor in spirit? Do you know of God's goodness and do you know of your own wretchedness? Do you know of his grace poured out on us in Christ that is our hope? May God make us humble and contrite. May God help us to see his glory, to understand our weakness because that is what's best for us. And because he has secured a future in his kingdom where forever we will not delight in our own abilities, but we will spend eternity. We will, we will, we will spend eternity not proving to everyone just how great we are and how much we can accomplish, but we will spend an eternity delighting in his goodness to us and his greatness. And knowing that and knowing your weakness, that is the good life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for shaping our desires and our hearts and reforming us to see that the good life is not what we are naturally inclined to in our sinful nature. It's not in what the world around us tells us or wants us to believe. But Father, the good life and knowing our own weakness and it highlighting your strength and your beauty. God, may you help us to be poor in spirit. May you help us to remember that those who are poor in spirit, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, God. Would you give us endurance and strength to live our lives that honor you because of this truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name.